Good morning to the Antioch campus. Uh, my name is Micah. I'm one of the pastors here, usually over at our Ridgeview campus. It's really good to see you all and, and to be with you on this fine Sunday morning. If you have a Bible, go ahead and grab it. Open it with me to Daniel chapter 6. Those of you who know me know that I was born and raised in the state of Tennessee. Any other Southerners out there this morning? Can I hear a yeehaw? Hey, there we go. That's, that's pretty good. You know, the Southern culture was, was all I knew growing up until I got a phone call one day in 2018 from some guy named Derek Lynch. And he said, uh, would you be interested in talking about a job in Kansas? And I said, you know, I, I've never been to Kansas. I don't know anything about it. But sure, I will pray about it. You know, that's what Christians say when they're trying to get out of something. But over that season, you know, my wife and I, God really began to work on us, and, and, and it became clear that this is where we needed to be. So I remember the day we got in our car and we drove from West Tennessee all the way up here to Overland Park, and, and I had not spent much time at all uh, in the Midwest in general, so unfortunately, i got to confess, I had a lot of stereotypes in my head. You know, cornfields and windmills and Dorothy and Toto and tornadoes. And you can imagine my surprise when I exited I-70 and came into Johnson County, Kansas. <laughs> I had never seen so many grocery stores or like grocery stores with coffee shops in them. I'd never seen that. I'd never seen so many places to eat. And, and all the grass was so green and there was no weeds. It was amazing. So after a while of living here, I thought, man, I, I love the Midwest. But what I didn't realize was I actually loved Johnson County. <laughs> Because this summer, we finally made the big drive west. We drove the whole state of Kansas out to Colorado, and I found out that all the stereotypes I imagined are true. <laughs> you just have to go to western Kansas to see it. In all seriousness, we really love, love living here. I love it in Kansas City. We love Olathe. And after four years of living here, I think I'm, I'm starting to become a Midwesterner, like it's, it's starting to rub off on me. Uh, my southern accent is fading away. Okay, that's, <laughs> I'm actually glad to hear that. Uh, I've started to wear jackets and layers. I uh, know, for the most part, how to use roundabouts. And I almost, almost caught myself the other day saying pop instead of coke. Uh, I do still drink a lot of sweet tea, though, to keep my life balanced. Uh, but here's the thing. Where you live has an influence on you. If you move to the south, I promise you, you will learn to love sweet tea, fried okra, and God's favorite, chess pie. Thank you. I'm glad somebody knows about the chess pie. You see, our environment, the culture we live in around us tends to shape us and change us over time. We are more influenced by our surroundings than I think we would like to admit. So here's the question then for us as Jesus followers. How do we remain faithful to God in a faith-hostile world? How do we stand on our biblical convictions when the culture around us doesn't share them and at times is even hostile or I may actively oppose them? Well, if you've been here with us on Sunday mornings, you know that's the question we've been answering as we walk through the first six chapters of the book of Daniel. Now, this Old Testament book was written at a time when God's people had been taken from their homeland and destroyed as a nation. Mightiest nation the world had ever seen, Babylon had come in, taken over, and dragged many of the people off to exile. The first group to be taken was a group of young men, teenage boys, which included Daniel and his friends. They were brought in to be brainwashed 
Uh, they changed their names, and, and they were taught the Babylonian way. The goal is to raise them up as new leaders for the king. But as we've seen, Daniel and his friends were different. God gave them supernatural gifts of wisdom and perseverance so that even when they faced death, they held on to their faith. They were tested over and over again, and yet all throughout they served as a testimony of the one true king of all kings. Today in chapter 6, we get to the high point of Daniel's story. It's not only the last narrative portion of this book, but it's likely the last major event of Daniel's life. You may remember that Daniel was taken to Babylon as a teenage boy, and it's important to note that in this story today, he is now somewhere around 70 years old. At this point in Daniel 6, he has lived a lifetime of faithfulness in a pagan, secular culture. By God's grace, Daniel survived Babylon, and he teaches us how to do the same in our Babylon today. So, Let's walk through our story this morning, and as we do, I want to share with you three things, three simple truths that we learn from Daniel's life. So look with me first at Daniel chapter 6, those first five verses. It pleased Darius to set over the kingdom 120 satraps to be throughout the whole kingdom, and over them three high officials of whom Daniel was one, to whom these satraps should give account so that the king might suffer no loss. Then this Daniel became distinguished above all the other high officials and satraps because an excellent spirit was in him. And the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom. Then the high officials and the satraps sought to find a ground for complaint against Daniel with regard to the kingdom. But they could find no ground for complaint or any fault because he was faithful and no error or fault was found in him. Then these men said, we shall not find any ground for complaint against this Daniel unless we find it in connection with the law of his God. Uh, the first question you might be wondering is, who is this Darius guy? Well, Darius was the new king in town. If you remember from the end of chapter 5, the reign of the Babylonian Empire had come to an unfortunate end. And while historically that was a big deal, most would say the writing was on the wall. Some of you will get that later at lunch. But the, the new empire on the block was the Medo-Persian Empire ruled by this guy, King Darius. And while Daniel was brought in by the Babylonians, they kept him around. They put him in leadership position. King Darius had this system where there were 120 different regional directors, and then there were three leaders above them. Daniel was one of the big three. And as Daniel has done all along in this book, he excelled so much at the king, he wanted to elevate his position even more. This caused the other officials to become angry. They said, you know, why should this guy, he's not even one of us. Why should he become a ruler over us? Well, their jealousy led to a plan. They needed to take Daniel out. But how could they do it? They couldn't find anything wrong with him. This guy was squeaky clean, unless it had to do with his obedience to the law of his God. So that becomes the plan. Look at verses 6 through 9. Then these high officials and satraps came by agreement to the king and said to him, O King Darius, live forever. All the high officials of the kingdom, the prefects and the satraps, the counselors and the governors are agreed that the king should establish an ordinance and enforce an injunction. That whoever makes petition to any god or man for 30 days, except to you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions. Now, O king, establish the injunction and sign the document so that it cannot be changed according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, which cannot be revoked. Therefore, King Darius signed the document and injunction. Did you catch there the lie that was told? 
They said, hey, all the high officials of the kingdom, all of us were here and we are agreed. Well, Daniel wasn't. Apparently, he was not a part of this. But here was the plan. Get the king to establish an edict where no one can pray to anyone else or anything else for 30 days and do it with no takebacks. And anyone who violates the rule is thrown into a den of lions. Why a den of lions? Well, one reason, it's cruel and unusual punishment. That's why ancient empires were known for devising some of the worst ways to execute their prisoners. And I would have to say that being thrown into a pit of hungry lions would be the worst. The king, of course, he loved the plan because it increased loyalty to him. It gave him praise. So he, he gladly he signed the papers and the plan to take down Daniel went into action. In the first part of this story, today, we're given the first thing we need to survive Babylon. It's this. Number one, we need Christ-like character. Have you noticed in this book that Daniel is never shown in a bad light? Now, Daniel did write this book, so there's that. But other Bible characters were pretty forthright in in showing the major mistakes they made. Uh, Guys like uh, David, Moses, the disciples. We know that Daniel wasn't perfect. He likely messed up and had struggles like the rest of us. So why no mention of it in this book? Well, I think one of the reasons is because we're meant to see the distinctness of Daniel in comparison to the culture around him and the situation before him. Think about it. As a teenage boy, he was forcibly taken from his home. He was relocated to a place where he didn't speak the language. He didn't know the customs. He was held in a re-education camp of sorts. Yes, it was the king's palace, but he still lived with the fear that any day he could no longer be useful to the king, and off he would go. And yet all along, we see this repeated, that Daniel is different. He's distinct. He stands out. And it's not that his voice is louder than all the rest. It's his character. It's the way he lived his life. Multiple times in this book, we see the Babylonians say that Daniel had the spirit of the gods in him. Now, the Babylonians were polytheists, meaning they didn't have just one god. They had many different gods. So it seems that this was their way of saying that Daniel had a supernatural presence about him. There was something different. He was unlike everyone else. And we see the pinnacle of Daniel's character in this chapter. The other leaders, they're brainstorming, trying to come up with something, anything they could hold against this guy, but they can't do it. He's above reproach. He's so devoted to following God that it's his devotion that's the only thing they can use to pin him down. Daniel was a man who honored the Lord with his character. But why do I say in this point Christ-like character when Christ had not yet come when the story was written? It's because Daniel makes clear throughout this book that he is not to be praised because of anything within himself or any special trait that he had. But rather, he says all along, he says, it's not me. It's my God. Daniel, as all of Scripture does, points us to Jesus, who was also blameless, except unlike Daniel, Jesus was completely sinless. Jesus was filled with the spirit of the one true God. Jesus said it was his father who he sought to obey and glorify at all times. And we see Jesus, too, stood out from everyone else around him. No one else could teach like Jesus or heal like Jesus or cast out demons like Jesus. People were fascinated by him to the point where they either bowed down 
or they wanted to kill him. Jesus has called his followers to not only follow him in his salvation, but to also follow him in his character. Our goal is to be like Christ, to be different and set apart from the world around us by not being conformed, but being transformed by the renewing of our minds. Paul said this in Philippians 2. He said, do all things without grumbling or disputing. It's a whole sermon right there. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish, in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world. It doesn't mean we won't mess up. It doesn't mean we won't struggle with sin. We will never be sinless this side of heaven. But it does mean that when we sin, we will deal with it before God and others and seek to become more like Christ. There's also something to be said here about the way Daniel conducted himself on the job. If you think you work in a rough workplace, look at Daniel. If you think your boss is a bad person, look at Daniel. He worked directly with multiple kings who were murderers and idolaters. Daniel's boss built a giant statue, put it in the break room, and told everybody to bow down or else. His boss routinely executed his coworkers. And yet Daniel worked with excellence in his vocation. He served the king however he could without compromising his convictions. He was trustworthy and dependable and respectful and honorable to the point where over and over when his colleagues failed, he had an opportunity to demonstrate God's greatness. If we want to survive Babylon and keep our faith in this culture today, we don't just need good morals. We need spirit-empowered, father-connected, Christ-like character. A character that is distinct from the world around us that may even seem strange and offensive at times. When people say, oh, you don't do that? You don't let your kids do that? What's wrong with you? we got to be different. Where does that difference come from? Where did it come from for Daniel? Well, let me show you as we continue our story. Look at verses 10 and 11. When Daniel knew that the document had been signed, he went to his house where he had windows in his upper chamber open toward Jerusalem. He got down on his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before his God as he had done previously. Then these men came by agreement and found Daniel making petition and plea before his God. The plan went perfectly for the bad guys. Daniel went to pray to someone other than King Darius, and he was caught in the act. So they run to the king, and they tattletale. And the king is in a bind. Remember, the king liked Daniel. He wanted to promote him, not kill him. So he does everything he can think of to try to save him, but... They, say, they remind him, hey, there's no take-backs here. He's been tricked. His hands are tied. So here's what happened. Flip over and jump down with me to verses 16 and 18 through 18. Then the king commanded, and Daniel was brought and cast into the den of lions. The king declared to Daniel, may your God, whom you serve continually, deliver you. And a stone was brought and laid on the mouth of the den, and the king sealed it with his own signet ring, with his own signet and with the signet of his lord's. And nothing might be changed concerning Daniel. Then the king went to his palace and spent the night fasting. No diversions were brought to him, and sleep fled from him. Here's the key I want you to see in the second part. How did the bad guys know that their plan would work? 
How did they know that they would catch Daniel in the act of prayer? Well, here's how. Look back with me again at verse 10. Look back at verse 10. It says, when Daniel knew that the document had been signed, he went to his house where he had windows in his upper chamber, open toward Jerusalem. He got down on his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before his God. And here's the key phrase, as he had done previously. They were able to trap Daniel because they knew exactly where and when and how to catch him praying because he was a man of consistent discipline. That's the second thing we need to survive. Babylon, number two, we need consistent discipline. Now, I know you guys are very disciplined, very committed Christians, right? But if I were in Daniel's position, it would have been tempting for me to say, you know, it's only 30 days. I'll just pray silently in my head as I walk down the road. Nobody will know. Or I'll just close the windows or go pray in the closet. I mean, there is no reason to get killed over this. But Daniel doesn't do that. And what we often think of as an act of defiance by Daniel was actually just an act of obedience to God that had become a part of his daily routine. He didn't go out in the public square and call for a big prayer rally. He didn't demand a meeting with the king so he could unload on him. He didn't make a long Facebook rant. He simply did what he did every day, three times a day he prayed. Daniel was a man of prayer. He was also a man of the word. Here's how we know that. Because we know Daniel likely prayed this because he knew God's word. He knew that years and years before, one of the kings of Israel, King Solomon, when he had dedicated his temple, he prayed this in 1 Kings 8. Solomon said, When heaven is shut up and there is no rain because they, the people, have sinned against you, God, if they pray toward this place, the temple, and acknowledge your name, God, and turn from their sin when you afflict them, then hear in heaven and forgive the sin of your servants, your people Israel, when you teach them the good way in which they should walk and grant rain upon your land which you have given to your people as an inheritance. Do you think Daniel knew this prayer? I believe he did. I believe this is why he opened up his windows and prayed in the direction of Jerusalem. He was being obedient to God. He was doing what he knew he was supposed to do for his people. And don't forget that Daniel was praying in the direction of a temple that was not there. It had been leveled. The city had been destroyed. Like Daniel, that there's no temple left. Give it a rest. It's been 70 years. God is not listening. No. Daniel believed. He had hope. And he prayed every day, three times a day, looking toward the place that symbolized that hope and restoration for his people. Listen to me. You cannot survive the Christian life without a consistent, disciplined relationship with God. You just can't do it. So God has designed a particular set of practices found in the Bible, modeled by Jesus, and performed by Christians for two millennia plus that are given to us for the purpose of helping us grow spiritually. And we call those spiritual disciplines. Things like prayer, Bible study, scripture memory, fasting, worshiping with your local church, serving. Those are the things we learn in, in our discipleship groups with quick plug. If you're not a part of one, you need to, to be. A Christian that does not practice the spiritual disciplines is like a member of a track team who doesn't run. 
You might wear the jersey, but you're missing the point. Running is actually a pretty good analogy for the spiritual disciplines. Uh, Those of you who run know that in order to enjoy running and to really benefit from it, running has to be a consistent habit of your life. You've got to run regularly, and over time, what happens? You get in shape. You start to enjoy it. You can go further and faster, and it becomes a part of your life. You can't imagine life without it. Now, I only run when I'm being chased. Uh, I've struggled to build that habit into my life, but i got to tell you, I have never lived in a place where so many people run. <laughs> like, have you noticed that? Like here, even in the winter, even in the snow, people run. Uh, true story, one morning I was on the way to church. It had snowed and iced the previous night. It was freezing outside. And there was this guy with his hat and his gloves and his little tights on. And he's jogging down the side street towards 151st Street. And when he got to the point where he needed to slow down and turn down the sidewalk along 151st Street, he couldn't stop. His feet kept going, and he started sliding on the ice. He's doing that thing where he's flailing his arm like landing a plane or something. He's sliding toward 151st Street in True Story. I look at and a car is coming down the road. And I'm watching all this in slow motion, unable to do anything inside of my warm and cozy car. And he, he slides, actually slides out into the street about three feet. And here comes the car and it swerves and barely misses him. And I just watched this guy's face as his life flashed before his eyes. And he got back up. And he just kept running. (laughs) And my first thought was, you see, that's why I don't run. (laughs) It's very dangerous. Very dangerous. If you're a runner, get a treadmill in the winter. (laughs) But I couldn't believe how how dedicated this guy was just running out there in the snow and the ice. And and here's the comparison I want to make. Every habit, every discipline requires consistency. It's all about playing the long game. And that's why God gave us the spiritual disciplines. They're like spiritual workouts. It's not always easy. It doesn't always feel good, especially at first. But day by day, as you seek the Lord in relationship with him, you grow. You become more like Christ. And it gets better and better. That's where we get the power needed to remain faithful in our Babylon. We set the sails with the spiritual disciplines and God makes the wind blow. And as we navigate through the stormy waters of our culture, we do so above the waves with confidence that God will carry us through. Daniel had Christ-like character. He had consistent discipline. Yet notice that those two things are not what spare his life. They don't keep him out of harm's way. He still has to meet the lions. So let's look at the last part of the story, verses 19 through 23. Then... At break of day, the king arose and went in haste to the, to the den of lions. As he came near to the den where Daniel was, he cried out in a tone of anguish. The king declared to Daniel, O oh, Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God, whom you serve continually, been able to deliver you from the lions? Then Daniel said to the king, O oh, king, live forever. My God sent his angel and shut the lions' mouths, and they have not harmed me, because I was found blameless before him and also before you, O oh, king. I have done no harm. Then the king was exceedingly glad and commanded that Daniel be taken up out of the den. So Daniel was taken up out of the den and no kind of harm was found on him because he had trusted in his God. Do you know what we don't see in this chapter? 
We don't see Daniel panic. We don't see Daniel complain. By all indications, Daniel had a calm, confident trust in God that some way, somehow, it was going to work out. He trusted that God was in control. And he walked out of a den of hungry lions without a scratch. Did Daniel know that would be the case? Do you think he knew he'd make it out alive? I don't see any indication that he did. All we know is that he trusted in his God. He had walked with the Lord for 70 years and was willing to die in order to honor him. He knew whatever happened, God would be glorified through his life. And that's what we see in these last verses, verses 25 to 28. Then King Darius wrote to all the peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth, Peace be multiplied to you. I make a decree that in all my royal dominion people are to tremble and fear before the God of Daniel. For he is the living God, enduring forever. His kingdom shall never be destroyed, and his dominion shall be to the end. He delivers and rescues. He works signs and wonders in heaven and on earth. He who has saved Daniel from the power of the lions. So this Daniel prospered during the reign of Darius and the reign of Cyrus the Persian. Because of Daniel's trust in God, God is again glorified in a pagan nation. Once again, a godless king declares the greatness of God. So here's the third and last thing we need to survive Babylon. Most importantly, number three, we need confident faith. Confident faith. Listen, if if we want to make it in our culture, in our world today, we need to have an unshakable trust in the sovereignty of God. That he is at work in all things, even when it doesn't make sense. Even when it seems out of control. Even when things don't go our way and we suffer. From that last verse, from what we know of history, I find it interesting that Daniel never made it out of Babylon. He never made it back home to Jerusalem. He never saw the temple rebuild or the fulfillment of his prayers in that upper room. Yet Daniel never wavered in his faith. Friends, God may never work out that situation in the way you want him to. He may not give you the job you've always wanted. He may not heal your cancer. He may not take away the depression. He may not fix your marriage. Will you still trust him? Will you trust that he is the king of all kings? Will you trust that he's in control? Will you trust that he's working all things together for your good? God may leave you in Babylon, but he won't leave you alone. Remember, he didn't keep Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego from the fire, but he was present with them in the fire. And he didn't keep Daniel from the lions, but he kept the lions from Daniel. I want you to know that no matter what comes your way, Everything may go wrong. Your life may totally stink, but through Christ, God is always with you. He promised that he will never leave you or forsake you. So that means you can trust him. You can place your confidence in him. Because just as he saved Daniel, the Bible says he will save you too, and in an even greater way than from a lion's den. You see, God sent his son Jesus, and like Daniel, Jesus was unjustly accused. Like Daniel, Jesus was sentenced to death. Like Daniel, he willingly faced execution. And like Daniel, when the stone was removed, Jesus walked out alive. But greater than Daniel, Jesus actually did die on the cross. He died in our place, taking our sins upon himself. And when he left the tomb, he defeated death and sin once and for all and said that all those who trust in him 
are forgiven and free forever. So yes, Daniel provides us a great example, but the point of this sermon and the point of this series is not be like Daniel or dare to be a Daniel. The point is to trust in Jesus. Just like the whole Bible, Daniel points us to Jesus. Trust in him and be saved. Trust in him wherever and whatever situation he places you in. He will use you and equip you to make a difference. He will be glorified through your life some way. We may live in Babylon today, but just like Daniel, we can survive. By God's grace, we can remain faithful. And just like centuries of Jesus followers before us who have endured way worse things than us, we can make an eternal difference. That's the goal. Let's pray.